And Romans 7 is one of the most debated chapters in the Bible throughout church history. So this particular chapter and the interpretation of this chapter is debated significantly throughout church history. This whole chapter is in relation to the law. So as we know, Paul has been talking about the law, the Mosaic law, think Ten Commandments, that you cannot keep perfectly, and you need Jesus because Jesus kept the law perfectly. So this idea that the law is now coming to a close in, in the book of Romans. We're going to transition after this chapter to life in the spirit. So this is the chapter that God determined that he felt like it was sufficient enough to make the point that we must believe in Christ and not the law. And to do this, he inspires Paul to write what has become one of the most debated passages in all of Scripture. And so today, I want to do something a little different. I wasn't going to, to do this, I want to explain to you, we're going to read the passage, and I want to explain to you what the, what are the interpretations that people think? Like, what are, there, there are two main interpretations that people take of this passage. So I want to introduce those to you this morning so that you can work through them. And then next week, I'm going to tell you what I think is I've wrestled with this a lot. So today, we'll primarily be reading this. So it'll be a little different. I want to explain to you what other people are saying about these, this passage instead of just myself. Let's pray first, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for just your, your word, the, the gift of singing, the gift of serving, for they are different. As Mike thanked the people who are here this morning that are, humanly speaking, responsible for us being able to understand your word and read it and hear it and see it on the live stream. Lord, we pray that you would continue to, as you always have, bless us this morning as we go through this passage in Romans 7. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me because this is such a technical passage. It's why many people struggle with the interpretation of its meaning. I pray that you would give me grace this morning to be able to explain in clear detail what people think about this passage. And I pray that you'd allow me to do that. And then let all of us, as we have to with every time your word is being read, have to wrestle with what does it mean for us? Where do we stand on the side of this? So I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. This is an incredible responsibility and so I thank you for this opportunity. Lord, if I say anything that is not of you, I pray that you would not allow it to re be remembered by your sons and daughters. And if I say anything that's true, may it burn in the hearts of those who belong to you. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's, let's, let's look at this, this chapter. We're going to read the whole 
chapter, all right? It's going to read all of chapter 7 in one swoop. Let's look at the most debated chapter, one of the most debated texts in all of the Bible. Beginning in verse 1, and I quote, Since I am speaking to those of you who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, you belong to, to belong to another, you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Let me just make sure you know what's going on right now because it's kind of like, what in the world? So what he's doing is he is making a point. He's using an analogy of marriage to make a point of how we are to the law. So his, his analogy is this. A husband and wife are married. Right, the, the husband dies and the wife is no longer married to that husband. There is no legal contractual obligation to this man because he's dead. So she is free to marry someone else and it is in no way, shape or form wrong, sinful, anything, because he's dead. That, that, that relationship is over. There's no more connection to that relationship you know, mind you, if they had children or something. But his point is that that relationship is over when he dies, the, the contractual agreement. What he's saying is Christians have also died to the law. So if we, if we were married to the law, that we're, that, that, now that Jesus has come, that relationship to the law is over. There is no more contractual obligation to be perfect and keep the law. Not that the law itself is somehow the problem, but we can't keep it perfectly. And so our trying to do it in the Old Testament way is unnecessary because Christ has come just like a woman whose husband dies, frees her from having to be obligated to be his wife. So does Jesus's death is now frees us from the obligation of trying to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. So that's his point. He's, he is making sure, again, that you understand the significance of the law in relation to Jesus Christ. So he makes this analogy. All right, beginning in verse 7, here's what he says here. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, 
sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, excuse me, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Huh? What in the world is he talking about? All right, so here's what he's trying to say. He is, he is trying to make sure that even though the law could not sufficiently save us, it's not because the law was bad. His point is, the law is good, but the sin nature in me kept me from being able to keep the law. So he wants to make sure that people know, that the, the, these believers know, that it's the problem isn't the law, so that we have a disdain for the law of God. No, he's saying, without the law, I wouldn't have even known what I was doing was wrong. He said, once I knew do not covet, it was like, oh, that's what this is. That's what this is. So his point is the law is good, but it couldn't do what it accomplished, not because something was wrong with the law, but because the sin in us would keep us from obeying that law perfectly. So that's his point. That's, the, that's, the, that's a summation of what he's trying to get at, is that the law isn't the problem. The law, once I knew what sin was, then I realized how much I did it. Let me give you an example of this. I, I, I experience this all the time, and maybe you have too. Whenever you get a car, let's say you go to the dealer and you get a car. Like when we got our gray Honda Odyssey, the soccer mom van that I look wonderful in, when we got that van, it wasn't until we got that van that I noticed how many other people have a van that looks exactly like ours. My kids all the time would be like, Poppy, that looks like our car. And I'd look over and be like, yeah, it does. And I started seeing the model that we have, or at least the color that we have everywhere. It was just like, wow, there's another gray one, there's another gray one, there's another gray one, there's another gray one. Before that, I hardly really noticed it because I didn't care about it. I didn't even, it wasn't mine. But now that I own the car, now I'm seeing how many other people have the same car. It's like my owning the car helps me see how many other people have the car. Well, what Paul is saying is what the law did was it showed me what sin is, and now I see how sinful that I am. And since I'm created to glorify God, the law is good, and then it shows me how sinful I am, but I can't keep the law. It's showing me how sinful I am, and therefore I'm in a worse place because I can't keep the law. That's what the law does. Once you know this is wrong, then you see wrong everywhere. Just like you know, wow, everybody has this car. You know it's your car more. All right, now, now here is the section that has many in the church bothered. This next, this last portion of Romans 7 is the doozy. This is it. This is the part that has had many in the evangelical church, from Augustine to John Piper to many, 
have wrestled with who is he talking about in these 11 verses. Beginning in verse 14, I quote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it. But it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law at work, different law in the, in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, let's be clear. The I that Paul is talking about is struggling with sin. So here is the point of contention that has had the church for the last two millennia stumped. Is Paul talking about sin as a believer or is he talking about himself as an unbeliever? So is this, these 11 verses, when Paul talks about I this and I that and I struggle with this and if I do not do what I want to do, is he talking about a believer living with sin or is he talking about himself as a non-believer living in sin? So this is the dichotomy. This is it. Is he talking about a, a, a believer, an unbeliever in Adam or a believer in Christ? That's, that's, that's the reality. Now, here's the challenge with a passage like this. And for me, it's threefold. It may be more, but it's threefold for me. The first challenge in understanding this passage is our theological framework. So our theological framework, we, listen, everyone, one of the things I love about pastors and about contemporary church culture is, Everyone thinks they preach the Bible and read the Bible objectively like this is what believers have done and what it meant all the time. Stop it. What did Michael Jones say? Stop it. Get some help. Listen, everyone sees the Bible from their cultural context. As best as we try to understand what the original authors meant, I am a 21st century American, black, gangster, there's no way I can divorce all of that from when I read the Bible. So when I see Jesus flip over the tables, you know what I think? Gangster. That's a part of who I am, right? My theological framework can get imported into this. So because I'm reformed, if I think of like total depravity, then I read into this passage, oh, this is total depravity, 
Is it really, though? Is that what Paul is talking about? Is that what the, the people who were the original recipients of this letter, is that how they would have understood it to be? See, our theological framework can make it difficult to understand what this passage means. Another thing, which I alluded to just a second ago, a challenge with it is our experience, right? Our experience, most of us, most of us, the majority of us, unless you're in the deductive Bible study with me and you're learning how to see the Bible differently, or you're in the Alpha Bible study with Mac and you're learning how to think of it evangelistically, which y'all need to do, sign up, stop faking, y'all ain't doing nothing else on Saturday morning. We know, we know, we know. But most of us read the Bible based on our experience. We read the Bible thinking, I can relate to that. That's why many of you don't go just open up and read Nahum. Many of you don't read Obadiah, Zechariah. You don't read Ecclesiastes. Maybe you read Ecclesiastes because a couple words in there for you. You read, but most of the Old Testament is what? Proverbs, Psalms. Why do you think they give out those little Bibles, the little miniature Bibles? Proverbs, Psalms, and the New Testament. You know why? Because that's what you relate to. And most of us read the Bible, how I can relate to that. So when we read this passage, we think, shoot, this described me last night. That can be a challenge in interpreting this. Is that what he's saying? Is, this, is that what he's describing? Is he describing? Is he trying to help you? Is he trying to relate to your experience or his experience as a Christian? Maybe. The third, for me, challenge with a passage like this is the way our Bibles are broken up. If you have a Bible, most Bibles will have some annotations. Like my Bible starts off, it says this. It gives you like these little Bible headings. So my Bible right before Romans 7 will be like an illustration from marriage. That's what it says. But an illustration from marriage about for what? It's an Okay, thank you. I mean, I can kind of pick that up without that being there, right? It's an illustration from marriage for what? And then, and then right above the beginning of verse 7 through 13, it says, sin's use of the law. Okay, cool. I can see that. And then right before 14 to 25, my Bible says, the problem of sin in us. So here's the problem of saying the problem of sin in us. That's, these aren't inspired. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire that. These are what translators who are translating the Bible have put to help Christians over time. As a matter of fact, the original documents don't have verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. You read that thing like a straight letter. There are no chapter headings, no breaks, no chapter 4. It's just straight words. We have a Bible given to us to make it easy to read, but people have taken liberties to tell us what each chapter heading is about. And that can, that can form the way we view the passage. We think, oh, it's the problem of sin in us. This is what this is about. But those are not inspired. Those are added for our benefit but they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's no original passages of Scripture. And believe me, there are many that have been found. There are no original passages that have an illustration from marriage or whatever your chapter heading is. None of those are there. There's someone else's, probably the people who are, or whatever translation you're using, they're using that heading to help us understand what you're about to read. That becomes a challenge. All right, so to refresh, to remember, here's what we're trying to understand. Is the description that is being used here in the text describing 
occasional struggles with sin, or is it describing a definitive position about sin? Is, are, are these articulating how you feel when you struggle with sin sometimes? Or are they describing Paul or a person who cannot make progress in sin? All right, now there are two, there are two positions. Some people think Paul is talking about himself as a Christian struggling with sin, and some people think, no way. He's talking about himself as an unbeliever, like someone unregenerate. Regenerate is someone with the spirits in them, and they believe in Jesus. Unregenerate is someone who doesn't have the spirit. There are two, these are the two main ways that people process this passage. So let's look at how people see it as a believer. All right. Here's the logic of people saying Paul is describing himself as a Christian living with sin. Their first observation is this. Looking at verses 14 through 25, here's the first thing they say. The present tense is used throughout this section. Paul's speaking in the present tense, not the past tense, the present tense. And they say, this contrasts him speaking in the past tense throughout the previous section. So in the previous section, he's talking past tense. But in this section, he's talking present tense. So let's look at the last section again real quick. Verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. See, the produced past tense has already happened. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the, from the law, but when the commandment came and sin sprang to life and I died. Here's past tense. The commandment that was meant for life resulted, past tense, in death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Right? That's all past tense. The argument is Paul in verses 14 is speaking in the present tense. He's speaking in the present tense. And that's, that's difficult to go from the past tense to the present tense without any clear indication that he's no longer talking about himself as who he is now. So they see it in the present tense. Listen to the language. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, present tense, of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice, right, present tense, what I want to do, but I do what I hate. It's all present tense language. Now, if I do not do what I want to do, I agree with the law that it is sin. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. These are all present tense statements. So the idea is that how can Paul go from speaking in the past tense in verses 7 through 13 and then now speak in the present tense, but he not be talking about himself in the present tense as a Christian? That's one of the main arguments for he has to be talking about a Christian who is living with sin. He's not talking about a non, himself as a non-Christian living in sin. Okay? Another argument is this. Paul's view of the unbeliever is given in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. And it's very different from this. It's very different. Like Paul, now it's, it's possible that people can have conflicts. He talks about it in, in, in Romans 2.15, that the conscience of a person can be there. So they acknowledge that conflicts can happen. But Paul's view of himself is very different. If the unbelieving view is in Romans 1, that's when, you know, they worshiped God. They worshiped the, the creation instead of the creator. 
And instead of worshiping God who created all things, they worship creatures and all the, and they give themselves over to sin. So God gave them over to a debased mind. And then you got chapter two, people who are hypocritical. You telling people don't do this, but you do the same things. And he's building this case of what unbelievers look like. And what they're saying is that's not the way that Paul talks about himself in other passages of scripture. Like if Paul's talking about himself as an unbeliever, the way he talked about himself as an unbeliever everywhere else doesn't fit the description. Case in point, they go to Galatians 1, 13 and 14. Here's what Paul is saying to the Galatian church, the church in Galatia. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism, listen to this, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my elders. So what the, the point is this, listen to how Paul is talking about himself as a non-Christian. Does he sound like he was overwhelmed with sin? Does he sound like that he was struggling with it? He's saying here, I was zealous for the traditions of my elders. In Philippians 3, it gets even clearer because Paul, he actually prided himself on his past achievements, on who he was as a non-believing Jew. And he says, I reject that now that I know who Christ is. But here's how in Philippians 3, listen to how he describes himself. Beginning in verse 4, 4 through 6, he says this, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Listen to that. So Paul is saying, I have reasons to be confident in the flesh. Why? Because of who I was before I was a believer. Well, this is how he lays it out. He says this, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, these are all identity statements, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So here Paul, as a Christian, is talking about himself as a non-Christian and essentially saying, I was killing it. I was a gangster as a Pharisee. I was, I was zeal. I was blameless. In other words, they couldn't find sin against me. Does this sound like Paul is talking about himself as a non-Christian when he is boasting about his obedience as a non-Christian. So how can he be talking about himself as a non-Christian? He has to be talking about himself as a Christian struggling with sin. Listen to the language in Romans 11. So listen to what we just heard. I was faultless, blameless, zeal. Now let's go back to Romans 7. Look at verse 19. For the good I do, for I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now if I do not do what I want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Does that sound like a dude who thinks of himself as blameless? So the argument is there's no way that he is talking about himself as an unbeliever because he thought of himself as an unbeliever as blameless. Leon Morris, in his commentary, good theologian, in his commentary on this passage, he says this. Now, remember, unregenerate, he's going to use the word unregenerate. Unregenerate means someone who's not a Christian, someone who doesn't have the spirit in them, 
Regenerate means you have the spirit in you, called regeneration theologically. He says this, Leon Morris, good theologian. He says, when I say that an unregenerate Paul would not say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, I don't mean that a first century Jew couldn't say that. Obviously, David said, I, I want some of my team, I delight in your law, right? I mean that the term inner being, and he quotes the Greek, eso anthropon, is Paul's way of saying, I don't mean this hypocritically or superficially or pharisaically. I mean that I myself really do, in the depths of my new regenerate man, love the law of God. Then he says, I don't doubt there were regenerate first century Christians, Christian Jews like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments. I am sure they delighted in the law of God and said so. Right, so he's acknowledging that there are some people who would have said that as Christians who hadn't become Christians yet because Christ hadn't come. But he's saying he doesn't think that's what Paul's saying here. In fact, Paul's testimony was, I persecuted the church. Zechariah and Elizabeth wouldn't have had a testimony like that. John Piper, who affirms that he was, this is talking about a Christian. Here's what John Piper says about Romans 7. He says this, when I say Romans 7, 14 through 25 describes Paul's Christian experience, I don't mean his steady state experience. I mean that this sort of defeat happens to Paul. For example, when he says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He is referring to an occasion in life, not the totality of life. Or when he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, he does not mean he lives in the steady state captivity. He means captivity happens to him. So when I describe Romans 7, 14 through 25 as Christian experience, I don't mean ideal experience or normal steady state experience. I mean that when a genuine Christian does the very thing he hates, this is what really happened to Paul, the Christian, in moments of weakness and defeat. So this is their justification. <sighs> right? Another justification, another reason why people think this is describing Romans 7, 14 through 25, is describing a believer. Here's another justification. It says this. The Christian life is the theme of chapters 5 through 8, not the theme of an unbeliever. It's not describing who Christians are. Beginning in chapter 5, you talk about Adam and, and Christ and being in Adam and in Christ. You got chapter 6 talking about we don't you know, let, let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And then we get to chapter 7. And, and then you get to chapter 8, which is the spirit, like, you know, the spirit of God, and we're children of God, co-heirs, all of these things. They're saying that those four chapters are talking about the Christian life. If Paul now turns to the unbeliever, it is contended that we should see some indication. So if Paul was just saying in Romans 6, talking about the victorious life of a Christian, how does he now go to Romans 7 and talk like he has no victory? Like there is none, as if he's just an unbeliever now. 
Like, where is the indication in the text that he transitions from don't let sin reign in your mortal body, right? You've offered yourself to Christ. So walk in a manner worthy, right? Like, don't, you're not fighting the, the, the sun in you, but the sin in you, right? Like, how does Paul say that in chapter 6 and then all of a sudden speak as an unbeliever in chapter 7 and then back to a believer in chapter 8? It doesn't make sense is what they're saying. It just doesn't make sense. He said, the will is directed toward the good throughout the passage. The desire to do good. Their point is, this cannot be said of the unregenerate. Now, I'll be honest. I'll say this real quick. Some of this is what I mean about your theological framework. Some of this is, is speaking from more of a reformed doctrine of sin. No one does good. No one. Yes, but there was a lot of things done in Old Testament of people seeking to glorify God and God responding to those things. So it wasn't like the only way a person could do good or delight in the law is as a New Testament believer. That's, that's, just a, that's just a sidebar. But this is what's happening. This is what they're saying. That cannot be said of the regenerate. He says that Paul agrees with the law in verse 16. He desires the good of the law in verse 18, 19, and 21. He says it is no longer he that does evil in verses 17 and 20. That implies that formerly he did desire evil, and thus now it points to a new regenerate status because he hates sin. You see, the present tense language and Paul saying wrestling with sin and how much he hates sin is an indication that Paul is speaking of himself as a Christian. So now let's read the, the passage again with the knowledge that you just had, you just heard. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So, no longer, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, it but the sin that is in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, for my, for in my inner self I delight in God's law, but, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. So what they're saying is, listen, the commands are not burdensome. It's just hard for him to live them. He desires to live them. He loves them. They're not burdensome. He just fails at times. This is their perspective. And it may be yours too, but this is, a, this is a Christian. I can relate to this. This is how I feel in my struggle with anger, lust, fear of man, whatever it is. You feel like this. But we have to be careful. 
there are a relatability to a passage is not necessarily what interprets a passage. It just means I can apply this passage, but it doesn't mean this is what the passage actually means in context. That's different. All right, now let's hear from the side of saying there's no way Paul's a believer. Paul is speaking as an unbeliever in this passage. There's no way. So let's look at that. Let's look at what the, the side that thinks, no, this is Paul describing him living in sin as a non-Christian before conversion. This is not him as a Christian describing living with sin. So here we go. He says, when we look at, this is just evidence, when we look at Romans 7 as a whole, we find a clear structure. So here's the beginning. This is a, this is a friend of mine. This is a, one of my favorite theologians named Tom Schreiner. Met him, loved this dude. He wrote the foreword for my first book. Great dude. Me and Mike hung out with him for a couple of hours, and I just was, I've benefited from his theology. He's, one of my, he's my, probably my favorite modern-day theologian. And he said this. This is his perspective. This is, he's one of the people that has this view. There are many that have this view. He's one of them. But here's what he said. He looks at Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, and notices something. Here's what it says. Let's read Romans 7, 5 and 6. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. So when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So here's what he's saying. And actually, all theolo most theologians would agree that verse 5 is describing before Christ and verse 6 is describing after Christ. Well, he's saying this passage sits right in the text before we get to verses 14 to 25 where Paul is describing all of this stuff. So how does he talk in the present tense here in verse 6 describing, he says this, but we now have been released from the law since we have died to what held us. So how does he now talk in 14 through 25 as if he's being held by the law? How does that work? How does he acknowledge that in verse 6? Well, here's what many people think is happening. Many people think this, that in verse 5, Paul is unpacking the idea in verse 5, which says this, for we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. They think the rest of chapter, verse 7 through 25 is Paul explaining what it's like in verse 5. Then they believe that Romans 8, the life in the spirit, is what Paul is explaining in Romans 8, 1 through 17. So essentially, Romans 7, 5 finishes off the rest of the chapter, and then he explains what Romans 7, 6 is like in verses 1 through 17. And his, the, the logic, some of the logic is this, that Paul never mentions the Holy Spirit at all in verses 7, 14 through 25. It's never mentioned in 7 through 25 at all. But Paul refers to the Spirit 15 times in Romans 8, 1 through 17, suggesting that the person described in Romans 7, 7 through 25 is the one who does not have the Spirit in his life. 
And he's right. He mentions verse 6, mentions the Spirit. Verse 7 through 25, including that struggle, there is no mention of the Holy Spirit, which is fundamental to the Christian life. And he explores that and and blows that up in in chapter 8. How does this person who's struggling with sin as a Christian make no mention of the Holy Spirit at all? Especially in a book like this, where he's describing the transformation that happens in a believer because of the Holy Spirit? It's a good question. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is to be indwelt with the Spirit, looking at Romans 8, 9. But we see in both Romans 7, 14 and 7, 18 that the person describes himself, Paul is describing himself as in the flesh. If you are, this whole, the whole point of chapter 6 is that you're in the Spirit. But Paul's describing himself now as in the flesh. How is he describing himself as in the flesh, one who is in Adam? When you, whoever is in the flesh is still in Adam, biblically speaking. It's one who is unregenerate. So how does Paul, in verses 14 through 25, explain himself as being in the flesh unless he's speaking of himself as a as a person, as a, as a Jew, before believing in Jesus Christ. The other argument here, so that one, there's no Holy Spirit mentioned in this passage. Another argument is that the total defeat described in Romans 7, 13 through 25. Many Christians throughout history have identified with the despair and inability of the I in Romans 7. We read these verses, and I agree. I read them and think, that's how I can feel sometimes. That's my experience. And the instinct is right, but but what Tom Schreiner and others say, their interpretation is wrong. As Christians, we are deeply aware of our continued sinfulness, no question. And in many ways, we fall short of God's will. As James says, we all stumble in various ways, right? James makes it clear. James said we stumble in many ways. In James 3, verse 2, it's clear the word stumble means sin. So there's there's no question that we don't sin occasionally, but that we all stumble in many ways. But when you read this particular verse, this is not talking about stumbling. This verse is talking about this isn't just talking about continuing to struggle in sin or falling short every day. This person is describing total defeat. This is the point. Listen to what Paul says in in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. This is talking about total defeat. You're supposed to be slaves to righteousness, right? Didn't he say in Romans 6, you've offered yourself to Jesus Christ, so you've offered yourself as a slave to righteousness. And he makes it clear, don't let sin reign in you. So sin exists, but you're no longer a slave to, to unrighteousness because you're obeying righteousness. But this, this is not a description of someone struggling with sin occasionally from their perspective. This is someone who is sold in sin, describing complete and total captivity to sin. The Christian life is one of peace, not inner conflict. And again, we know that we're going to struggle. We're going to balance condemnation and conviction, all those things being considered. The reality is that this seems to be describing a person living in sin with no hope 
or no ability to resist sin, except to just want to do it in their thoughts, but no ability to act those thoughts out. The argument for those who don't think that he did, the, the argument for those thinking that this is describing living in sin is that listen to the language. Like this is defeatist language. This is an occasional struggle. This is, man, I can't win. This is, this is Mickey telling Rock, you can't win, Rock. He'll knock you into tomorrow, Rock. This is it. You can't win, Paul. They're saying, how does Paul talk like that as a Christian? After just saying in Romans 6 that you have authority, power over the very sin that you're struggling with. And now in Romans 7, he's copping a plea saying, man, I, I can't resist it. Listen, there's no way he's speaking as a Christian struggling with sin. Another point of contention for them is that Jesus Christ is not mentioned until verse 25, apart from verse 4. And the Holy Spirit is not mentioned at all in the passage. So how does someone who has been laying out a foundation in the letter that Christ is the way of salvation, that trust in Christ and not the law is the only way that you will make it into eternity to spend like time with Christ forever. How does that person not even mention Jesus Christ at all in verses 14 through 25? The very person that you began your letter with saying you are a slave of Christ. The very, the very foundation of your letter is that for I am not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1, 16, for it is the power of God to save, for the righteous will live by faith. How does that Paul, who is promoting Jesus now in these 11 verses, not even mention him as a Christian struggling with sin until the very end? It doesn't seem like this is a believer talking. And I've alluded to this a couple of times, but one major point, and I've said this a few times, but it needs to be said again because it's a major point, is that Romans 6 contradicts almost everything he's saying in Romans 7. Is that Romans chapter 6 contradicts just about everything that he is saying. Let's read Romans 6 again just to get a feel for that. We, we looked at Romans 6 the last two weeks, right? Let's look at Romans 6 again one more time in completion. Because the point is, how in the world does he say this in Romans 6? This is contradictory. So let's start with, let's do this first. Let's start with, let's read 7, 14 through 25 again. I'll read it. You just listen. If you don't want to read it, that's on you. You stand before the Lord and give an account. I'll read it. Here we go. If you fall asleep, like dude over there, you'll stand before the Lord and give an account. All right, here we go. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good in me, 
but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does, that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law when I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner the sin of my body. So, this, so the point is, how, how, how can you say this? What a, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. So how does that square with this? Therefore, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is all of us, this is including himself. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So we're walking in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be like him in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. This sounds like the Paul who wrote, this sounds like Romans 7. It sounds like he's enslaved to sin. Verse 7 says, the person who has been free, dead, died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we may also, will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like what he's saying about himself in Romans 7, 14 through 25? Does it sound like he's saying he's dead to sin? He acknowledges Christ at the very end, but he sounds like my day-to-day my -day practice is struggle, is failure. Is the Paul who's telling us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in God now saying that he feels us, he's in the flesh? Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you bear its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. I can just read that part without even reading 15 to 23 and say, man, it just does not seem like what Paul is talking about in Romans 7 is what he's saying right here. So as you can see, the arguments on both sides are compelling. And it would be easy to pick a side and say that's what it is. And I've studied this pretty heavily. And after reading the passage, I've chosen a side as well. And I think both, are, both of the sides are wrong. I don't think that's what Paul intended to do at all when he wrote this. And next week, I will explain why. Today, I wanted to give you just a tension of the passage so that you could see, like, wow, there are good arguments on both sides. But there are a couple of things that I think are missed when you understand what Paul is trying to accomplish in writing this letter to the Romans.
Let me tell you one of those things. We have to remember that Paul is writing to Christians who have accepted Jesus, who are still tempted to live according to the law. We'll get into that, and I'll unpack next week why I don't think that either of those are, they're good options, and you could choose one and be fine. Your eternal destination doesn't hinge on which one you think it is. But I think there's another option that I think is actually what Paul's doing that's a rhetorical device. So we'll look, we'll look at that next week, and thanks for letting me sludge through all of the crazy uh, language of Romans 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the parts that are really clear and the parts that are unclear because they force us to still trust you and, and to try to understand in faith. Father, I pray that you would have mercy on us as we seek to glorify you and live out what's, what, what we think your word is calling us to do. And I pray that you'd give me wisdom as I explain next week why I think both of these sides are, are inaccurate and display what I think you're really doing and show from the passage what, what you're doing as you're explaining who is the I in the end of Romans 7? Is it you as a, is it Paul as a Christian living with sin? I don't think so. And is it Paul describing himself as a non-Christian living in sin? I don't think so. But I pray that next week I'd be able to explain that with your help for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you very much, Pastor Kurt. We do have um, a couple of questions here. Um, remember that you can text your questions into us at 240-623-8076. Um, the first question is, um, is, you know, how do we know if our interpretation of Scripture, um, our interpretations of Scripture are accurate or representative of the Bible? And what are your thoughts on Bible deconstruction where people argue that Bible inerrancy is, quote, man-made? End quote. So we have this we have this 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 idea called the Bible interprets itself, right? So we look to other passages of the scripture. Like when you read a passage, particularly the one, first of all, let, let, hold, let me back up. Most of the Bible is very clear. You may not like what it says, but it's very clear. There are only a handful of passages that are pretty unclear. And some of those are because they are prophetic in their origin, so the clarity is not there. Um, there are reasons for that. Some people think that God wasn't clear in the passages so that the enemy couldn't know what God intended to do, so through prophetic writings like Daniel and Revelation. Most of the, most of the scripture is clear. It's describing what happened and how God worked in people's lives, and, and then there are laws and commands given that we should follow. Most of the Bible is clear. The passages that aren't, there are unclear we, we try to take what Scripture says in other places and see what is consistent in the Bible as it relates to what this is saying. If I don't understand what this means, what's consistent? Or we look at, okay, like, like prime example, how do we know something is cultural versus um, um, contemporary? Like, how do I know, like, should women wear head coverings because, you know, Corinthians says that or what? How do you know those things? Well, one, we start with, okay, morality. Morality is transcendent, right? So do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery. All those things, those aren't contextualized. Even though some people think same-sex attraction is contextualized, morality is consistent in the Old Testament, to the New Testament. Then you have cultural things that are not necessarily consistent. So one of the ways that we observe is like, okay, 
if he's saying something to this church, but he doesn't say it to all the churches, then maybe he was speaking to this church for this church only, unless we see a theme in other churches. So there's a number of different ways. I don't want to explain every hermeneutical process, but the, there's a number of ways you come to the conclusions you come to. Ultimately, I think this is why people use commentaries and things. We trust the interpretation of things that people have come to, to over church history. This is why people read commentaries and, and, and go back and forth because they wrestle with that. And then, you, and then you get, if you have the ability, you use the original languages. What does the Greek actually say? What's the Greek word or what's the Hebrew word and how is it translated? There's a number of ways we come to that conclusion. And I think there's a lot of good ways. I think, and I think also, we have to also know that God doesn't want, if God said in Hebrews 11, that to have faith, you must believe that I exist and I reward those who seek you. And if I've left you my word, like, why would he make it so unclear that we can't follow him? So there's enough of the Bible that we know how to obey God. We know what we have to do. There are some things that are a little tricky, but most of those things have nothing to do with my morality or my relationship with Christ. There are details that may help me understand something or not. As far as uh, the inerrancy of being man-made and stuff, listen, people will, people will say stuff like Homer and the Iliad and all, all those type of books. Those books have way less errors and have been transcribed way more than like the New Testament scriptures. In fact, most of the documents that we do have copies of from the Dead Sea Scrolls and New Testament parchments that we have are almost ver identical to the scripture. So not only did God preserve the word, he allowed people to find fragments of, we have a good bit of the New Testament in museums and stuff, and they 100% line up with what we see in our Bible. So to me, I think God has preserved his word sufficiently enough that even if there's some things that are not clear, they're not things that distract us from the main message or our ability to glorify God. All right, thank you. Um, the next question that we're going to ask is, um, why is interpretation of this passage so important that theologians have argued uh, over it for years? Does it have any implications if you misinterpret this particular passage? That's a very good question, actually. And I'm glad you asked that. This is my personal opinion, and you asked it. You're asking me. Remember, you clicked on me. I don't think it's a big deal. I really don't. I think theologians sometimes have nothing better to do than to prove that they're right and argue with other theologians. I don't think it's a big deal. And I don't, I think it does have some, I don't think it has implications on how you think as a Christian, unless you think, oh, the, apart from relatability, to be honest. I think if you think um, this is describing um, my life as a Christian, then I can relate to this. And maybe you find some strength and some hope in the fact that Paul struggles like you. Uh, if you think that he's a non-Christian, then you find some solace in the fact that you don't struggle like this as a non-Christian and so forth and so forth. The, the, I think theologians, this is what they do. They write papers and they do stuff and they come up with ideas. And I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Does it have great implications for the life of a believer? I personally don't think. I'm not, I don't know if you have something different. I personally do not think so. I do think, though, wanting to understand God's word is always going to be at, at play. So when you're trying to understand what he means, then you, you're, and you think, oh, he's talking like this, and someone says, no, he's not, it's going to be um, a process and a journey and a back and forth. And because Romans, 
What I will say is Romans is the most, and everyone agrees with this, that Romans is the most theological book in the Bible. It's the, the greatest treatise on the gospel in the whole book of the Bible. So because of that, I think people want to make sure that they understand every bit of it because as a book, it's, it's supremely important to the Bible. And it, connect, and it says things that it doesn't in any other book. And it's, a, it's like I said at the beginning of this, the most fascinating thing about this is that the Romans were the soldiers, were the people who killed Jesus, and yet God gives them the most theological understanding of who they killed, which is a fascinating display of grace to me. So I think that's why people go back and forth over it. In the grand scheme, no. Even in Revelation, does it matter what your end times position is? Not really. Not really. Think about the thief on the cross. He just said, look, I know you're, you, you, you didn't do anything wrong. And he said, you're up here innocent. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. You're, the other thief is wrong. You're not. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't ask him, hey, who do you think, what do you think is going to happen at the end times when it's got, he didn't care about none of that. And even though, that, even though the thief on the cross didn't know about Paul wasn't around yet, it just wasn't things he cared about. It was belief in the message of Jesus Christ, who he is. That's what, that's what, that's what matters. And then how we live out. So, um, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think ultimately it doesn't make, it's not going to matter just as you de described. I think functionally, though, um, it can cause people to have, depending on how you interpret this, it can help you to have a like a defeatist attitude. I, I think it can in a negative way, though. Right. In that, right. right. Yes, right, I think right, it exactly, can. Right. So pastorally, yeah. You know, I would want people, and I'm, I know you do too. You know, want people to know that there's hope to overcome sin, um, and I think functionally, people can think like there is no hope, depending upon how you interpret. Yeah. This passage. And, and so to say that, I was in a different direction, thinking of the grand scheme of it. But if we're talking pastorally. And actually, what we saw happen in the family of churches that we used to be in, I think people can use this passage to justify giving in to sin because they just feel like it's just too, you know, these things are too wonderful for me. So I just, I just think you can just justify giving in to sin because you see Paul struggle with it, too. It can also release you to sin, right. and that's not what Paul's talking about. That's not his point. That, again, that defeats Romans 6. That's the whole, that defeats the whole purpose. But I, but I do think for purposes of helping us just know the Bible, it, it is helpful to try to know what it means. So I'll offer what I think and, I, you know, and, and if, you know, but it does, if you choose one of the other positions, it's not like, oh, okay, yeah, you please resign your membership of the church. Like, I'm not going to be offended, you know what I'm saying? But I think, I think what I'll offer next week is a little bit more reasonable in terms of the flow of the letter and the flow of where the letter is in the chapters. Um, I was wondering... If you could, um, you mentioned in the, uh, in, the, in, the um, in the sermon how the, you, you didn't, you, there was nuance, you said it quickly, but I was wondering if you would describe the difference between interpretation and application. Mm -hmm. Interpretation and application? Mm -hmm. So interpretation in the, most, in, the, in the most reductionistic terms, in the most simple way to say it, interpretation is what does the Bible mean? Okay. Application is how do I live in light of what it means? That's pretty much, pretty much it. What does the Bible mean? What does this mean is interpretation. I want to understand what this means. And then application is, well, how do I live? 
how do I apply what this, what do I apply? And, and, and the beauty, the thing about the Bible is there's not always a one-to-one application. Like sometimes you're going to apply something or see something in there that's not necessarily what the author meant. Like, well, like I'm talking in the deductive Bible study group that I lead, we're understanding that, listen, we're not trying to, authorial intent, that's a phrase used to describe what the author of the letter you're reading intended to mean to those who he was writing to. So the goal of preaching, if it's good preaching, which I hope I do occasionally, the goal is to try to understand what that meant for them, explain that to you, and then what it means for us. But there are times when, so when you take, when you go to seminary, you get theological training, what they teach you is the text, the text, the text, the text, the text. Cool. The problem is you got to also under, what they call it exegete, exegete the text, exegete, understand the text. But you also have to understand the people you're talking to. So there are times when, yeah, there's, this is what he's saying in the text, but I'm, I'm need to, I know where our church is, so I'm going to emphasize this. This is what we need to hear right now. This is what we need. And that's, what, that's when you're preaching. That's when you understand where your people are. So some churches, they just read the text and tell you what it means. And then it's like, cool, but like, what does that mean for us? That's not really where we're at. And so that stuff can, can also be a, a, a challenge. Um, this next question is, so for those who think that Romans 7, 14 through 25 is for non, from a non-believer's perspective, how would they process what can be perceived as a moment of non-belief, like when um, John the Baptist sent, you know, disciples to see whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah? Uh, I mean, I don't know how they could process that, to be honest, but I'll give it a shot because I can't speak to how they think. But what I would say is I think those are that's kind of an apples and oranges perspective because the, Paul is describing and. Uh, if, if you think it's an unbeliever, Paul's describing like a battle with sin. Like John the Baptist's wasn't necessarily a battle with sin. That's a totally different dynamic. John was struggling because of his circumstances. I mean, if you, if you know the scriptures, John got arrested right when Jesus' ministry started. Like if you remember that, John got arrested early. Like we don't hear, it's just a line in the gospels. John got arrested early. As soon as Jesus' ministry started, John was up out of here shortly after that. So John's been in prison for a minute. And so he's not, there's no clear indication that he's wrestling with sin, but we know he's wrestling with his circumstances and wrestling with, at the very least, we can assume that the fact that you would ask if Jesus is a Messiah, when you baptized him and saw the spirit descend on a dove and you just heard in Luke 7, he brought a man back from the dead, we could assume that you're struggling with your circumstances and you're, you're experiencing doubt. What, what Paul is describing is an inability to have victory over sin. So those are a little bit different. So I would say I don't, I don't know how they would make that. I don't know if that connection would be easily made by them, but I appreciate the, the, the thought and trying to connect it. I just don't know if those are the same things because they're talking about really a, a struggle of I'm overwhelmed by sin versus I'm doubting because I can't. I'm, why am I locked up? You know, how, 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 why am I in prison? Uh, this next question is, um, is it possible to get so caught up in avoiding sin and being a slave to righteousness that um, one could concentrate more on avoiding sin 
than on having an actual relationship with God? If so, how can that be combated? 100%. It's called legalism. That's one of them. It's when you're so aware of your sin and trying to do right and do this and do that. I mean, that, I mean essentially, <laughs> I mean, I, okay, so we don't, we, we're obviously not there when the Bible was written in, in those days. But I would say I think that's what the Pharisees did. They tried to be, I mean, Paul said it himself, as, as it relates to the law, blameless, right? I was faultless, like I was the gangster. I obeyed the law better than all the Pharisees, right? That was his point. My obedience was stellar. I was trying to keep all the laws. I was zealous for the traditions of the elders. And then he realizes, man, that means nothing. So I think we can get distracted by what we call sin management and trying to... Re- and we'll get into that probably next in, the, in Romans 8. When we get to Romans 8, we'll talk a little bit more about... You know, the Bible does... We do resist sin because it's, it's proof of our conversion, right? Like we, Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. 1 John 3, 9... No one born of God will continue or practice sinning, right? You're just not going to just do it comfortably. You're just not going to do it. If you can, then you don't belong to the Lord. So I do think we need to give attention to it. But, like, one of the things, like, so, like, I'm going I'm to take this example and kind of ex- extrapolate based on your question and an idea that's not really what the passage is about. But if you look at Mary and Martha, right, here you have Martha doing all these things, trying to please the Lord, make food, and do all this stuff. And here, Mary is just at his feet, just chilling with him. And when Martha says, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this? Tell Mary to help me. He said, Martha, you're anxious about many things. Like, you're doing all this stuff because you're anxious. He said, Mary is doing what is right. I'm not going to take that from her. So being with Jesus sometimes is better than doing for Jesus. And I think we can, people can get wrapped up in doing and and trying to do resist sin so much that your relationship with God, that your obedience doesn't flow from I love God and want to obey Him, but it becomes like I want to be like like I, the question I would ask is why are you resisting sin so much? Why is that such an emphasis? Because it might not be because I love God, and I it could just be because you could be in the in, in resisting sin. You could have not prayed and not read your Bible in weeks. I've had seasons where I've been like that. I'm more focused on what I'm doing, pastoring, meeting, doing this, and I can go, and time has gone by. I ain't spent time with the Word because I'm teaching. That ain't the same thing as my own self. Praying for people ain't the same thing as praying for myself and praying. It's easy to do that. So I think I'd say, man, why are you doing those things? And if you love God, then it's not just obeying him. That's part of it. But we, I think Jesus demonstrates this going alone to be with the Father. Even when Jesus teaches them how to pray, he says, when you pray, so the assumption is that you do pray, that you spend time with the Father. So yeah, I think it can happen. I think we have to be careful of it. That doesn't mean like, hey, I'm going to just spend time with God and not focus on resistance sin either. It's just the balance. It's the balance of the Christian life. It's we're always walking a tightrope. And how are we, you know, sometimes we lean that way too much, sometimes that way, but we're always trying to be balanced. And that's, and that's just the reality. Hashtag stay balanced. All right, uh, we have a couple of um, questions where people actually offer, um, could it be this, could it be that? Sure. Okay. All right. Talk about so, other, other interpretations of the passage? Yes. Oh, let's get mm-hmm. it. Yes. So um, is it possible that Paul could be speaking both as a believer and a non-believer, as a believer in the past tense, and as, excuse me, as a, belie- as a non-believer in the past tense, and as a believer in the present tense? I think that's specifically with regards. Well, anyway, 
Um, sure. Is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? I don't. I'd have to really, I'd have to really, really think about like that. Like, is it? Is he doing that? Is possible? Sure. Um, the question is, and it's hard to answer this, but what would be the purpose of that in the flow of the letter? Like, what would be the purpose of that? Like, who, who was, why, would, who would Paul do that for? And would the original author, would the original recipients of the letter, would they think that that was happening? That's how we have to always try to imagine. And again, we don't, you know, you have to sometimes do some research to know. Like, would, would they see it as that? Like, we're, you have to remember, your cultural context, you know, we talk certain ways. And so, uh, is it possible? I think so. I haven't heard anyone offer that as a, as a, as a, um, yeah, I haven't heard that. But it's a good, I mean, it's a, I'd have to think about it more to think, how would that fit with, because I need to know what lines you're referring to. So I'd have, I'd, I'd have to have more questions than to, to know and see, it, see how you're trying to see it before I could sufficiently answer that. I don't know what verses you're referring to that would be pat, like non-Christian, then Christian, and going back. Because there really is no, non, no Christian language in that passage, technically speaking. So I, I would have, yeah, I'd have to know more from the person asking the question. All right, another uh, uh, question um, about this related to the interpretation is, uh, could it be that Paul is describing regenerate believer that due to trials has lost sight of the Holy Spirit. Also, could the losing of sight of the Holy Spirit be due to struggling with principalities, sin, or mental illness? It's possible. It's possible. I think that it's possible. It seems unlikely, though, that that would be true in the sense that, remember, Paul is talking about the law in relation to the law, and he uses a marriage analogy. Then he uses the analogy of how the law reveals sin, and then he goes to the sin within the eye, whoever, whatever the eye is, whether that's. So there's, it's, it's possible that he could do that, but that would be, I think, inferring more from the text. It would be reading into it more than what I think would be actual from the flow of the actual chapters that precede it and then after it. But it's, it's not a, a, I mean, listen. It's not a bad thought at all that Paul could be struggling in that way. I mean, he does end verse 25 with, you know, thanks be to God that, you know, that Jesus Christ, that, you know, the, so he does end it that way. That he, it's possible that he could be wrestling with that. Um, but it just, it wouldn't be, it's a really good thought, though. These are all good. I like, I mean, don't get me wrong. These are all good perspectives, and I appreciate you all thinking about what, what it might be meaning and stuff. I hope these are people from the DBS. Um, but, but yeah, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. I don't think that's what he's, what he's getting at though. I think the, I think that put it like this, I think the other two options are more realistic, more plausible than that, than that one, that he's a believer or unbeliever. But it's a good thought though. That's good thinking though. I love that kind of thinking. All right. Um, this is the last question. Um, and uh, this person uh, says, in uh, Luke 17 talks about the person who sins against you constantly and that you should forgive them seven times. They notice that Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. Do you think that the 
that the brother, I guess it's the sinning brother, um, who needs to repent, um, was not a Christian? I don't think so at all. I don't think that, I don't think that was, that was Jesus' point at all. I think his point was not on the, the Christian. Well, first of all, I don't think it was his point at all. I think the point that he's making, it's on, it's on imitating God and forgiving others. So I think Jesus' point was, if someone comes and asks you for forgiveness, you got to forgive them. Because Jesus is answering a question. I think he's in, Peter asked him, Lord, if someone sins against me seven times, do I forgive, you know, how many times do I forgive him? Seven? And Jesus said 77 times or seven times seven or whatever, seven times 70, whatever. So I think the point that he's making is less about is the person a Christian. I think Christians should ask for forgiveness. So I don't think that, that it's not, he wasn't a Christian doing it. I think it might just, you know, people, we, James, we all stumble in very many ways, right? Uh, obviously, the point of the story wasn't that, but it was this guy's just probably struggling with sin towards this person, and he's asking for forgiveness. But the, the, the emphasis of the story is that you forgive because God's forgiving you. That's the emphasis of the story. It's good questions. Um, I have one more, uh, and that is um, this person says, for me, he keeps talking about the good that I want to do. Mike, you might have to answer this one. I got to use the bathroom. Amen. You Amen. might have to answer this joint. Um, if you're not a Christian, uh, the good that I want to do, if you're not a Christian, um, would you really desire to do good in that way? Um, I think it's good. I think the good you want to do is because you are a believer. You, you want to honor the Lord. Um, and the fact that you can't do it is more of a realization of how you fall short no matter what because of the law. And if you're held to the standard of the law, you won't be able to hold it no matter how much you desire to honor the Lord as a believer. Is that possible? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was so much said there. I don't even remember. Yes. Is it possible? I think people desire to do good work. So I think there is, there are people in the Old Testament that desire to glorify God. And to the degree in which they want to do that, it, you know, is it possible? Yes. But I'd have to, I'd have to think about it more than just say, yep, yeah, that's it. That's it. So I got to go. Love you guys and see you.